Let's, uh, let's hear from the Lord. John chapter 4. We're going to be in verse, 41, or verse 1 all the way down through verse 45. So we're going to need the Lord's help. It's a lot of verses. So let's pray. Father, we come to you as our, truly as our Father. And uh, we're thankful that we don't come to you just as our sovereign Lord, as our King, um, as our Judge. But we do come to you as sons and daughters. And we want to listen. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say. And we want to sit with ears wide open and hearts wide open. And we just want to hear and receive whatever you have for us today. And we're going to get a heavy dose of your love in this passage. Jesus, you are so wild and free and offensive to all the right sorts of people. And welcoming to all the wrong sorts of people, which is actually the very way that is right. And so we're thankful for your grace and for your mercy for us. Uh, just teach us, lead us, Holy Spirit, I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So in John 3, we saw a man who sinned in very respectable ways. Uh, Nicodemus was a guy who was uh, moralistic, he had done the right things, and he actually was quite humble as well. He was kind of a guy that was hard to not like. But his sins were trusting basically like the other Pharisees had done. They, he, they were trusting in their own abilities. They, they were foreign to the idea that God had to do something to them. This idea that they had to be born again, that he had to be born again, was uh, confusing to his ears. He was the kind of man who had respect in his community. The workaholic will get a lot of respect from people, from a lot of people except their family, but they will get a lot of respect from others. From other people outside of the home, the workaholic seems to be the guy or the girl that always gets things done. They will work the extra hours, not just the extra hour. They will get there early. They will get done what needs to be done, and they will help anyone who needs to be helped while their family most often is in tears, but they gain respect. There's respectable sins. Moralism, trusting in ourselves, often brings respect from other people. Because those who trust in themselves don't let other people know that they are trusting in themselves. They look very, very humble. They look eager to help. But some sins, unlike the sins of the Pharisees, unlike the sins of the moralistic person, some sins, even today, don't gain public applause. Depending upon what society you live in, there are certain sins that just simply won't bring it. In our society today... Uh, being convinced that there are moral truths will not win you public favors. Uh, you will not gain followers or fans. Um, but there are some sins that, uh, that in our day um, don't get you those sorts of praises or accolades, but there was in the scriptures in John chapter 4 some sins that wouldn't get you much praise either. In our day, sexual promiscuity, it won't bring public disgrace. It really won't. But in this culture, sexual promiscuity did bring public display, public disgrace. Sexual ethics mattered in the story in John chapter 4. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We find a person who is the opposite of Nicodemus. Look at John chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although John himself, Jesus himself, excuse me, did not baptize, but only his disciples. 
He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. We have a mission. Jesus is wanting to go to Galilee, so he's going to leave Jerusalem. He had heard that others had heard that he was making and baptizing more people than the, than the John the Baptist. And so he decided to go on this trip. And at first glance, it seems like uh, kind of a by chance trip or an unmotivated by any divine circumstances trip. But we find pretty quickly that this, in fact, was a mission trip. It wasn't just a trip to Galilee to go up to Galilee and come back. It wasn't just a backpacking trip with his friends. It was very intentional, and he was sent out by his father. How do we know this? Well, in verse 4, it it has a very interesting phrase. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this is interesting because Samaria was north of of Jerusalem and Judea. Down here, uh, here is Jerusalem, and then here is Samaria, and then Galilee is above Samaria. Okay, so what's down here? Jerusalem, and then we have Samaria, and then we have Galilee up here. So the word had to go through Samaria is really interesting. It's interesting because strict Jews were long known because of their disdain for the Samaritans who were half Gentile, half Jewish people. Strict Jews in the religious order of the Pharisees and Sadducees would walk around Jerusalem. They would cross the Jordan, go up around Galilee, excuse me, they would go up They would go around Samaria to get to Galilee. They would walk completely around. Now, Pharisees in the day would expect Jesus to do the same thing, at least the strictest of the Pharisees, the real conservative type, that Jesus would do this, but it says he had to go through Samaria. It's interesting because he didn't actually have to. There's precedent there before to not have to. So why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, in verse 34, we are told the reason why Jesus walked through Samaria. Look at verse 34. Kind of keep your thumb or your finger in the first few verses of of John 4, but then kind of look over with your eyes or flip the page to, to verse 34, and it says this. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Now, that ties in, that verse ties in to what He had the disciples do in just a second. So here's what we know just from these little verses, from these clues that we're getting from these few verses. Jesus is following the will of his Father into Samaria. There is a purpose of God in Samaria that we're going to discover by way of Jesus' journey through the North Country. We're going to find out what's going on. What is the Father's plan? What is Jesus' ear in tune with? We're going to see. It's a mission plan, verse 34 tells us. In verse 8, it's fascinating because we're going to find that Jesus finds himself, because he's tired, he finds himself at a well. And what he ends up doing is he ends up sending the disciples, every disciple, away to get food in the town of Sychar. So Jesus was tired, and he sends all the disciples away, leaving himself alone at the well. The setup is beautiful. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus is going to send, in verse 8, all of the disciples to get food? Because typically, when you're at the office, or when you're at school, or wherever it may be, you send a runner to get food. They go up to Subway, 
And you don't want to get behind the person at Subway that's getting food for the entire office because it takes forever. You stand there and your clothes begin to get the aroma that Subway has. You know, your, your clothes, you wash them two, three, four, maybe even five times. And it's just like Polar Whip. It still smells like Subway. So you're at line at Subway. The one person is there. Typically, the boss doesn't say, all of you guys, get out of here and bring me back some food. But Jesus does this. He sends them all away. It is a divine, what some people have called a divine, what's it called? A divine appointment. divine appointment. God's at work doing something here. And Jesus is setting the whole scenario up. He's following the will of his Father, sends everybody away. And now we have Jesus alone at this well. Now, it's interesting because in verse 31 and verse 33, we find out when the disciples come back with the food... Jesus says, I don't actually need it because my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. And he doesn't even eat the food. And all the disciples are like, well, did somebody bring him food? Like, how does he not need food? Where did he get food? Did he find food out here in the desert? Maybe there were some passerby and jumped off their camel and gave him a sandwich. They were completely confused. Jesus didn't actually need food. This is a setup. And it is a setup for the most unlikely of people. This was a mission trip. God is going to do something in a person and in persons of a city, the very city of Sychar. We find out in verse 7 that this target is really, really unlikely. Who is this that God is sending his son Jesus to do something in? Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, remember, Nicodemus, just one chapter before, he is a man, so male, biologically. We have to define that today, unfortunately. He is a Jew. He is a Pharisee. He's wealthy. So, kind of upper class. Eats at nice restaurants. Goes to nice places. He came looking for Jesus, if you remember, and he was humble. The woman we're going to find out, we get already told this in verse 7, she is a Samaritan woman. So she's a woman. Later on in the passage, we find out when the disciples come back, their jaws are wide open because he is talking with a woman. Not just a Samaritan, but a woman. Jaw wide open. They were in awe. Oh my goodness. The audacity of Jesus to treat a woman with equality. And by the way, a side note. Ladies, you're so much more than equal. You're also feminine. And men, you're so much more than equal to a woman. You're also a man. Equality in our society dwindled down to sameness. Strips the male and female of dignity. You are so much more than equal to a man. And men, you are so much more than equal to a woman. We are equal and showered gifts upon us. We are equal and male and female. Jesus talked with this woman. He doesn't really care about cultural rules. I love that. It's fascinating. So she's a Samaritan, a woman. She's not wealthy. She's getting her own water, which means she doesn't have anybody else to send to get it. She was not looking for Jesus. We find out that she is immoral, and her responses to Jesus were quite sarcastic, according to every single commentary that I read. 
For Jesus to engage in a conversation with this woman would be risque at best. It would risk his reputation as a strict religious leader. It would call into question from his disciples the reasons and the motive that he was doing what he was doing. They would be confused. If Jesus was to talk to this woman, it would break so many written and unwritten rules. You could almost hear the religious people shouting, Jesus, bad company corrupts good morals. Don't you know this? Bad company corrupts good morals, Jesus. Do not associate with those Samaritans. And certainly don't talk to this risque woman at the well who has a bad reputation in Sychar. Don't do it. Abstain from the very appearance of evil, Jesus. What's Jesus do? <laughs> oh, Jesus, the rebel. I love it. The rebel in all sorts of right ways and holy ways and godly ways and not ways just to make people mad to make people mad. He will offend people at the cost and the expense of loving people. And it's so fascinating. You can almost hear them say, Jesus, don't, 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 don't do it. But then we have verse 7b. The woman from, the Samaria, the Samaria, from Samaria came to draw, draw water and Jesus said to her, Jesus speaks, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus speaks and her response tells us the oddity of the moment. She kind of corrects him a little bit. Jesus, don't you know, sir, don't you know you're not supposed to be doing this? You're not supposed to be talking with me. We put our head down. We don't make eye contact. We certainly don't speak. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. Leave me alone. She's somewhat confused. Jesus asks for some water. Now, it's interesting to note, it's not just the Jews who had contempt for the Samaritans. But the Samaritans, in turn, likewise, also had contempt for the Jews. There's a long history in the Middle East area of contempt. To this day, you would not define Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, all of those area, areas. You could put a lot of defining words there, but peace, order, and mutual love wouldn't be one of them. Okay, So strain, tension had been there for a long time. So she is confused by Jesus' words uh, as much as we would be or as the disciples would be. Why are you doing this, Jesus? And then Jesus, because he's so good at this, he confused Nicodemus and he like, well, I'll just confuse her too. I'm going to bait her, bring her in. Look at verse 10. It's fascinating. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus seems to be in left field here. He takes what is temporary and external, and he begins to point to things that are internal and eternal. Internal and eternal takes what is temporary and external, water, a well, and just confuses her like crazy. If you knew what I'm asking about, you would ask me to give some living water. You can almost see her already confused that 
She's being talked to by this man. You can almost see her confused thinking, living water? I mean, she asked the question much the same way that Nicodemus asked the question, how can I, now that I'm old, be born again? And she's thinking, you don't even have anything to draw well with, water with. How are you going to get this living water and where can I have some? Where can I get some? She is confused. Jesus answers back using this, but he's just, he's like a doctor. He's like a surgeon. He, he cuts with a scalpel. He knows exactly when to speak or when to be silent to confuse people or to correct people, to bring them in. He's just, he's, I mean, he, he's like, a, he's the best communicator of all time. And yet people get confused. It's fascinating. He's intentional even when he brings confusion. It's just, it's unbelievable. Jesus is just such a wild card. And he's like, when he does things that we don't like or when he does things that people don't like in the scriptures, he's right. Everybody else is wrong. <laughs> like, so it's up to us to come around Jesus and not just say, hey, Jesus, would you just do some things that I like um, and just make things acceptable to me? Like, it's our responsibility to here to say, Jesus, you're in charge and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to follow you. What you do is right. And so he's having this conversation with this woman. He is not sinning. He is doing the right thing. And he begins to talk even in greater detail in verse 13 and 14. Here's what he says. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, now this is interesting. Is anybody in here, and I wish this was the case, and Jordan knows this, I wish I could drink one cup of water and never have to drink it again. I really do. I don't like drinking water. I'm trying to drink more water. You know, enough people have said that it's important that it probably is. You know, uh, however many glasses a day or ounces a day you're supposed to have. I, I wish it was Dr. Pepper 10 that I was supposed to drink 64 ounces a day of, but it's water, doctors. Um, and so I wish that I could have some of this water. And she responds like that. I wish I could have some of this water as well. But Jesus is telling something to her that we need to hear. Jesus is saying, okay, this temporary and external thing, water, I'm going to give you and I can give something that's internal and lasting, satisfying. Something that you drink it and it's there to sustain you the rest of your life. This does not mean, so Jesus is saying, if you'll, if you'll drink of not just this water, but if you will take a, a big glass of me, if you'll drink of me, you'll be satisfied internally. I will do for you what you want this water for, to do for you when you're really hot and you really need a glass of water and you drink that. I'll do that for you internally. And it will be satisfying forever. Jesus is saying that he is all satisfying. Now this woman, we're going to find out, had been looking for internal peace. She had been trying the same thing over and over and over again and not finding it. And Jesus is calling out to her to say, if you'll have some of me, if you will listen to me, if you will drink from me, if you will have me, I will satisfy you in ways that the men in your life in the past can't satisfy you. I will do it. I will satisfy the thirsts of your very heart. Your thirsts have longings and desires inside of you. 
And we have these longings for eternal things that are just simply there. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who fills those longings, who satisfies the internal desires of your heart. Jesus is enough to satisfy you for all eternity. Now, here's the deal. With our church, we don't do a lot of, we don't do a lot of stuff. We do a lot of hanging out. But most of our stuff that we do, missions, or whatever it may be, community outreach, it's happening, but it's not, it's not known that it's happening because you're just doing it. You're the church. We're not organizing it. It's just happening. When you pay for somebody's gas or buy somebody's meal, or when you help somebody on the side of the road, or when you pray for somebody at Kroger or Walmart, wherever it may be, mission is happening. Okay? It's, it's happening. God is at work, working in ways that, that we don't necessarily see. And there was a point to what I was saying, but I forgot it, so let's move on. <laughs> but internally, Jesus is saying he will satisfy us, but, but here's the deal. This does not mean that your heart won't ever wonder or that you won't ever have longings in your heart that go unsatisfied. I want you to hear that, because believer, you know this to this day, you still have some heartache inside of you. Oh, oh yeah, I remember what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> When, when we as a church, when it feels like, and it may feel like to you if you've been a part of other churches, that we don't do enough stuff. We're not doing enough. And here's the point. The stuff that we want you to do, here's what we want for you. Jesus. What's next? What's the next big thing? Jesus. What's the next big outreach? What's the next big event? Jesus. What, what, what's, what are we doing? We've we got to be busy because Christians know we have to be busy. We have to get going. What's next? Jesus, because he satisfies your thirsts and somehow makes us thirsty for more. But it does mean, although it doesn't mean all of our, doesn't mean that all of our longings will, will just go away forever. It does mean that the spirit will give you enough grace that your soul will keep going till Christ returns or calls you home. When you feel dry, the Holy Spirit comes and reminds you of the work of Jesus. You come to church on a Sunday morning, you see us sing a song, and something clicks that morning, and all of a sudden, Jesus is satisfying again to you. Over and over and over again. He never gets old. People who have been walking with the Lord year after year, they get to their deathbed, and they don't say, Jesus is more boring today than he was yesterday. Jesus is more satisfying to them now than ever. He satisfies the soul. Jesus is an endless supply of satisfaction. And so if you do feel dry this morning, I want you to know that Jesus is saying, hey, drink of me. Have some of me this morning. Sing to me. Listen to my word. Receive communion this morning. Come again to me. The problem, we're told in Jeremiah 2, 13, because this problem of thirsts, and trying to, trying to get internal satisfaction, the problem with God's people had been a long, long, historic, very old problem. In Jeremiah 2.3, we're told this. Jesus says, for my people, God says to my people, they have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people were trying to be satisfied in themselves and not in God. And Jesus is saying to this woman, he's saying to us today, I'm it, I'm the point. 
The Holy Spirit is reminding us it really is all about Jesus. Come back to him today. Think about him. Worship him and you will be satisfied. But people don't believe Jesus. They think, well, I need Jesus, but for me to be really satisfied, I need Jesus to do what I want him to do for me and give me the life that I want him to give me. And then I will be satisfied. It's not what Jesus says. Sometimes Jesus will not give you the life that you want, but somehow or another you find out as you're walking with him over the years, you know what, this is so much better. And anything with Jesus is better than anything without him. People don't believe Jesus, unfortunately. Humanity believes, I mean, humanity really believes, and unfortunately, some people, even in the church, that the answer is found in here. And we talked about that last week. The woman, needless to say, is confused. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking physical. She's still thinking this is some sort of magic potion, some sort of water that I can have and drink and never have to come back. She still thinks it's physical. She's confused. But then Jesus begins to break her broken cisterns. Jesus begins to turn it inward and he shakes her to the core. Verse 17, the woman answered, Jesus said to her in verse 16, excuse me, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you know, you're right. You're right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus knows everything about this woman, and he confronts her with her sin. What will she feel? Will she feel ashamed? Will Jesus shame her? Her sin is exposed publicly. Five husbands, and now she's living with a man that is not her husband. And that last line, and the man you're now living with is not your husband, is a key to what's going on with this woman. This is, it is, was not a socially acceptable practice. She was a woman of Sychar. We don't know all the details. Maybe a few of her husbands had passed away. But she was not a woman with a good reputation. Okay? There was some promiscuity there. And that reputation had followed her. And he exposes her. She would not have been a social incast, but a social outcast. Many commentators believe that that's why she went out at noon to the well. She didn't want to go with the other ladies. It doesn't say that explicitly, but it seems to be a real possibility. She keeps going back, apparently, to the same old thing. She gets married. We don't know the story. Maybe her first husband was a really good man. Things went bad. He died. She gets married. Somehow or another, though, five husbands, and Jesus calls out her sin and says, now you're living with a man who is not your husband. Have you heard it said before, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, and what? Expecting different results. This woman kept going back and thinking, maybe, maybe it's the next time. Maybe it's the next man. Her cisterns that she had hewed out for herself were on display. But that is insanity, after all. But here's what's so crazy. Jesus is not scared of her sin. Nor is he scared of yours. 
Here is a man, here is Jesus in front of her who knows everything about her and he will not mistreat her. He will, in fact, love her. He won't use her. Finally, a man who knows her and has good intentions for her and not bad. Well, there's a shift that happens in her. She gets religious really quick. She sees something's going on and she kind of, you can almost feel her like, oh my goodness, he just told me, he just read my mail here. What's going on? So she begins to get religious and starts talking to him about worship. And she kind of responds. You can almost imagine her palms sweaty and her heart racing and her being nervous about this. In 19 to 24, we get the dialogue. It kind of explodes on us. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, duh, doesn't say that, but. Emphasis mine. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, so you, the Jews, not just Jesus, the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus has her attention and in verse 19 she knows something that's going on. And then in verse 20 she says, hey listen, you guys say worship is supposed to happen over there. We say worship is supposed to happen here. I see you're a prophet. I kind of want to worship now. Where, where am I supposed to be worshiping? She's thinking external still. Place. Place. Where am I supposed to worship? What place? But in verse 21 we hear that it's not about a place. It's not about this mountain or that mountain, this place or that place. This is not an external thing. It's something internal. And religion has done this over and over and over again since the beginning of time, since Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves externally when they sinned, they felt shame. Religion was born, external religion was born in the garden when they tried to cover their own shame externally. They took clothes and they covered the, 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 the leaves or whatever it was and they covered themselves. They felt shame. And religion in general, it, very specifically, not in general, over the centuries since then have been external. It's all about what can I do? Where can I go? What pilgrimage can I make? What can I do? And Jesus explodes her categories and just basically says it's not about place. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Spirit, it's not a place. We still confuse this today. Now, I'm going to get nitpicky. We call this building a church. But we know that. It's in a church. It's a church building, but it's not a church. It's a church building. And no matter how much we kind of train our mind to think the people are the church, we still think God lives here. We still think places are holy. But friends, we are the people of God, the temple of God. The Spirit dwells within you. It's not about place. Brick and mortar or wood and drywall and vinyl siding. Okay? You 
are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not about place. In truth, who will worship Jesus, not in, but just in spirit, but in truth, worship Jesus for who he is, not what we want him to be, the true God. The other category of religion, not only has it always been external, it's always been under human direction, human law, human idea. What I can do, and Jesus says it's about spirit and truth. It's, it's not about what you can come up with. It's not about what plan you can make to get yourself to God. Christianity offers something totally different. It's Jesus who will come to a woman who's done nothing right. And who will know everything about her, her deepest, darkest secrets. Look her right in the eye and won't flinch. And who will love her at the expense of his own reputation will love this woman. Spirit and truth. The truth of the God of the universe single-handedly saving sinners. That's not a message you'll find anywhere else. Spirit and truth. And God is seeking such people. God has always been the seeker. And to this day, He is looking to and fro who is worshiping me in spirit and in truth. And if you want to feel the absence of God... Not the actual absence of God, but if you want to feel the absence of God, then run around acting as if your salvation is about your performance, and you will be frustrated time and time again. If you think it's all about you, and you take the way of religion and place, you'll just never be satisfied. It's like watching the news or being involved in politics. Is it, have you found anybody who likes politics that's happy? Nobody. So it's not about place. It's not about, it's, it's about Jesus. And so what ends up happening, you see a transformation. It's unbelievable. A light bulb comes on. This woman begins to be changed. She doesn't get everything right, but God is going to use her, this unlikely woman, to be a missionary. She comes face to face with Jesus. Jesus isn't scared of her sin. She is exposed, and he doesn't run. He doesn't flinch. He loves her. A light bulb comes on in verse 25. Look at this. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. A light bulb comes on. This is no ordinary man. I've heard rumors. There's a Messiah to come. Maybe this is him. This experience changes everything for this woman. Jesus explicitly declares himself to be the Messiah to this woman before anyone else. And in spite of who she was, her past sin, her present sin, her lack of understanding, he shows himself to her. I'm the Messiah. See, Jesus is supposed to do all sorts of other things, but not this. And yet he does it. He's wild. He's free. He's right. Amen. This woman is a transformed woman. Verse 27, we find out the disciples are shocked. They come back and they marvel. It's the whole thing that I mentioned at the beginning. Can you believe he's talking to a woman? This woman that he knew everything about. And this Jesus who knows everything and knows her promiscuity. He didn't have a sinful thought about her even though he was alone with her at a well. Nothing weird happened. He didn't have any thoughts. He, he had pure thoughts, pure motives toward her. 
In verse 28, it's fascinating because in the morning she came to get a water, a, a jar of water. And, and then in verse 28, we get this incredible verse and it says this. So the woman left her jar and went away to the town. The very thing she came there for, she gets so excited. She meets this Jesus. She's so changed that she leaves it and runs back into the town. She doesn't need it anymore. The very thing she went to get, she leaves. And then in verse 20, 29, oh yeah, by the way, it's a wonderfully freeing thing to have Jesus know everything about you and love you anyways. It's like, it's so wonderful that she just, I, I can't, what, what am I here for? Oh my gosh, I, I don't know. He, he knows everything about you. There's nothing behind closed doors or under the mat or just brushed, pushed under the rug. He knows it all. He's like, you know what? I love you. I know you're, you're a mess, but I love you. You're mine, and I'll take responsibility for your mess. Verse 29, you see the newness of this faith of the woman. 29, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Come and tell me a man who told me about all my sins. Come and hear him and he'll tell you about all your sins too. What a message. Come, he'll tell you everything you've done too. And then she says, can, can he be the Christ? She didn't have everything figured out yet. Welcome to the team, right? Have you ever thought about evangelism? That's for people who know apologetics and that's for people who know answers to harder questions than I know answers to. Well, this woman goes into this town just hooping and hollering. She leaves with one reputation. She comes back into town. She's not a likely person to listen to. You know, like Jesus could have got more respectable people if he wanted to send a message into Sychar and this woman. But she goes hooping and hollering in town saying, hey, I'll tell you, could this be the Messiah? And listen to the response of the people. Because it's not about the eloquence of our argument. It's about the power of God. And if we're just faithful to tell us about this Jesus and all our wild and hyper excitement. And if you just say what you know. And even if it's not even right. Maybe he's the Christ. I think he is. God has a way of working through you. Fascinating. Verse 39. Look at verse 39, skip ahead, skip ahead. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now it's fascinating. He didn't say, no woman, you didn't really do all this stuff, you're not that bad. She's blown away that she knew it all and loved him anyways. He didn't come to her and say, no big deal. It's the raw fact God knows all my sins, the worst parts about me, and he loves me. Fully known. And what an unlikely missionary. Jesus was on a mission to send revival to that town. God the Father sent him up through Samaria, and he picked this woman to be the messenger of Sychar. This is our Jesus. So I have to ask, is this woman with us today? Or a man? You feel like you're too far, you've been used, abused, you've done silly things. 
and you feel like Jesus looks at you and he flinches and he gets nervous and he runs away, Jesus is not scared of your sins. And you can feel his embrace again today. You feel dry today? Like Jesus' words to the woman aren't actually true? Well, my soul doesn't feel satisfied today. Maybe it's because you've been trying to worship on this mountain or that mountain and you haven't been spending time with him. And maybe today the Holy Spirit comes and turns your eyes again to Jesus and you feel internally satisfaction. You keep making the same mistakes over and over again, you are not too far. If you'll come to Jesus again, you'll see. He knows it and he loves you anyways. Jesus did not love her because she hid her sin. She didn't clean herself up first. She didn't have time to. He loved her when she was in the thick of it. So maybe you were this woman, or maybe this was your story. And we need to be reminded that God's unflinching love is set toward us today, this morning. We're going to have an opportunity to sing and to respond. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you have no idea what that means, okay, what's going on in here? If you're feeling like you want to worship Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit. That's not your flesh. If you're feeling like you need to repent of some things, lay them down, say, Jesus, I know you know anyways, I'm tired of this. Well, that's not your flesh. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay? And let's worship Him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your plan that you had a plan for the town of Sychar, and it wasn't just the town of Sychar you had a plan for. You had a plan for us, for these cities, these communities, and these people that are in this room. There was a time that you sent a messenger, just like this woman, to come and tell us. It may have been our parents, friends, pastor, youth leader, VBS worker, or what, but you used a woman just like this woman to come and tell us about you, what you have done for us. And we've never been the same. And so satisfy us this morning. And the good news for those in here who don't feel satisfied, that's, again, not a condition by which we're saved. We're saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. Not by, well, Jesus saves you, but if you don't feel satisfied, you're not saved. Uh Uh-uh. We're saved by Christ and Christ alone. And may that truth satisfy parched souls this morning. Holy Spirit, lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.